All right, I invite you to grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the passage of Scripture is in your bulletin. It'll be on the screen here in just a minute. Uh, there's also a Bible right in front of you on the kind of like the little rack at the bottom of the seat. Uh, if you don't own one, man, you can take that home as a gift from us. And so if you're just joining us, uh, we're spending a few weeks here before we jump into the book of Galatians where we're talking about our identities. Uh, this is something that's very uh, formational and foundational for us as a church uh, since, the, you know, since conception, 20 plus years ago. And even though we don't, uh, or we have not directly talked about these, there's a lot of indirect references to our identity. And so when we think about identity, here's kind of the core idea that we, what we're talking about is what we do flows out of who we are, and who we are kind of dictates and determines what we do. And that's identity language, all right? That's what we're talking about. When we talk about who we are, we're talking about identity language, who we are now in Jesus Christ. What are those foundational truths about us. Sometimes you can kind of make the, the argument or the statement that kind of this process of what we call sanctification or formation is where the Holy Spirit of God is working out of you what you already are in Jesus Christ. You follow me there? So your identity is something you get in an instant, and at the same time, it's an invitation to become. And we used the, uh, you know, the illustration of a marriage last week where, hey, in that in that moment, on your wedding day, when you said, I do, in an instant, your identity changed. You became a husband, you became a wife. But that was also an invitation of this long journey of what it looks like functionally to do that together. Amen? Can I get at least one from some married couple here? Sorry, you didn't walk off that stage and instantly knew how to do life together, right? You really sucked at it. Amen, right? It's like, all right. Sorry, I hope that wasn't offensive. Um, if it is, I ask for forgiveness. But here, it's, it's reality though. Like, we really stunk at it. And we, we're in a lifelong journey of what this looks like to be a married couple. But in that instant, your identity changed. And the same thing with you. If you're a Christian here, the moment you confess Jesus as Lord, your identity changed instantly. And one of those we talked about last week is you became a child of God. And I laid before us there that that's foundational to us in living functionally as a Christian. Your identity in that moment changed. You are a child of God. And what is fundamentally true about you, no matter how you feel, no matter how good of a week or bad of a week you've had this week, what is fundamentally true about you and being a child of God is that you are deeply loved. Deeply loved. And that's a truth that we give kind of like mental assent to, and that's okay, but the reality is it's a truth that we don't fully grasp, and it takes a lifetime and most likely an eternity to, to dive into the depths of that reality, that you are deeply loved by the Father because you're a child of God, not because you perform well this week. And for some of you this morning, that's exactly what you needed to hear, and that's it. I had some great little emails sent to me this week, and I really do appreciate those. I mean, they're, they're super encouraging. And uh, one lady sent one and said, you know what? Maybe we should do that every year. You know what I'm saying? That sermon reminded of that truth every single year. And I just wrote back and said, amen. I need it. I need it every day. I'm a child of God, and I am deeply loved. Today I want to talk about a disciple. You are a disciple. We're going to do this out of Luke chapter 10. So if you are able, will you stand with me in honor of reading God's word? As a side note, I've, I've always wanted to just kind of 
get one sermon and preach it for like a month. You know what I'm saying? You know, it's kind of like, you know, like people write and, you know, do an album when they write those 10 songs. They have it for like a year or two, right? And they go all over the place and play those 10 songs. Like sometimes I just want to do that with a sermon. Like I'm, I'm coming back with the same deal because I don't get it yet. Amen? So here, all right. Maybe that's just my stuff, all right? So thank you for humoring me for a few minutes here. So we're going to read the last few verses here in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38. So while they, and, and the context tells us that this is Jesus and his disciples, were traveling, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed, her into her, welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all of her many tasks, and she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone, so tell her to give me a hand? And the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice, and it will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we, as we do each week, we come to you humbly asking for your help to understand what is going on in this passage of Scripture. God, we cannot do this by flesh and willpower. We need the Spirit of God to come and illuminate us. Open our eyes, God. Open the eyes of our heart. Open up our ears and help us to hear from you, your voice to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So I recognize that sometimes when you do these things, they don't necessarily work. It worked a little bit in the 9 o'clock, and so that gave me a little confidence to do it in the 11 o'clock, all right? And so here in just a minute, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. And so I realize that some of you are new here, you're a guest here, and it's going to kind of put you on the spot. I don't mean to do that. Please come back next week, and I'll never do it again, amen? Uh, and, and if you're a regular tender here, maybe you can help our guests by maybe keeping your head down so they don't feel weird because their hand is not up, all right? So here we go. Now that you guys are all really confused and excited about what I'm getting ready to say. So, by show of hands, how many of you would say, I'm a genuine, true disciple of Jesus? Raise your hand. Okay. Awesome. Now, put your hands down. Now, how many of you in this room would raise your hand? It could be the same people too, all right? So, how many would raise, raise your hand and say, I am a genuine, true Christian? Raise your hand. Okay, keep them up. Keep them up. I think this worked. All right, look around you real quick. There's more people that raised their hand when they said, I'm a Christian versus I am a disciple, right? Would you not all agree with that? Okay, I'm up here and I can see better, all right? You can put your hands down. So here's the question, why? Why is that? Isn't that interesting that whenever I said, hey, if you're a real, genuine, true disciple, some of you did, some of you were like, maybe, right? You know what I'm saying? It's like a little halfway, not full on. I'm scared I might have some pit stains, so I'm going to keep it down here, right? Or whatever. But, but, but when we talk about, hey, am I a genuine, true Christian? There were a whole lot more of you that raised your hand pretty proudly and straight up. Why is that? I mean, I think there's a, there's, there's a lot of reasons that we can probably lay before us, but I think one of them is because we feel like disciple is like varsity league, amen? It's like, that's really serious, you know, Christian 
Yes, but disciple, man, that's like next level. Like I'm not, I'm nowhere like a disciple. I'm still in JV or for some of us, maybe like middle school. Like I'm barely on the middle school team for crying out loud. Disciple, wow, that's, that's way up there. It seems really, really serious. But here's the truth, man. There is nowhere in the Bible where someone can be a Christian and not a disciple. Because disciple is an identity. The word disciple is used something like 269 times in the New Testament. The word Christian, three. So look, guys, look, being a disciple is not next level. Being a disciple is not varsity league. Being a disciple is not some kind of this intense, crazy, oh my goodness, serious. Like the people that were called disciples first, how awesome were they? That's supposed to make you laugh a little bit, right? I mean, I don't know what you got in your mind as far as what a disciple looks like, but if you look at the 12, oh my goodness, that bar's pretty low, right? All of them abandoned Jesus when he was hanging on the cross except for one. One betrayed him. The other denied him. Like, like goodness gracious, what do we have in our minds, right? So when we think about disciple, guys, it's not a next-level Christianity. It's actually who you are as a Christian. The moment that you confess Jesus as Lord, your identity changed, and your identity became a disciple. You are a disciple. And remember, it happens in an instant, and at the same time, it's an invitation to become one. No, no one's ever arrived. We're all in process here. So what I want to do this morning, as best I can, because I... I feel like sometimes this, uh, this topic can feel very um, heavy-handed sometimes. It can feel like, man, a punch in the gut. It can be kind of reminded of all my lack and what I'm not doing and what I should be doing because I'm a disciple. Uh, I listened to a, a sermon this week about this topic, and I agreed with everything that the guy said. But at the end of the day, when it got done, it wasn't very helpful because I didn't want to do anything he said, right? It's like, I don't want to do this. Like, you just mounted a ton of guilt on me and reminded me of all the ways that I'm lacking. And so my desire this morning is not to do that. I may unintentionally do that, right? That's not my desire. My desire today is to be helpful. And so what I want to give to you, which I think is in this passage of Scripture, is kind of like um, a picture of a disciple, or the, the posture of a disciple. And so if what we do flows out of who I am, and if I am a disciple, then what am I fundamentally doing? Does that make sense to you? Are you following my train of thought there? What is it that I'm doing as a disciple? There's a lot. There's a lot we could talk about, but I want to focus on one. I believe it's kind of a posture, a picture that we see in this passage of Scripture. So when you first read this text, if you're like me, it bothers you, right? Okay, maybe I'm the only one in this room, all right? It bothers me, right? Because you want Jesus to say something different. And you even feel bad about saying that because he's Jesus, right? It's like, I feel really weird saying that right now, so I'm just going to kind of like pretend like I really like this, this text because it's in the Bible and this is what Jesus said. But if we're really honest and we're getting all the chips on the table, I think most of us in this room, this text bothers us. We want Jesus to say something else. I mean, follow me. Look what he says here in verse 38. 
So while they were traveling, like I said earlier, it's Jesus and his disciples. Jesus entered into a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed her, him into her home. And she had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. That word distracted there carries this idea that, that Martha allowed her attention to wander, which implies this, that Martha wanted to sit and listen to the words of Jesus, but because of all that was going on in her head, all these different lanes that were going on, all the preparations that had to happen, she kept getting distracted. She kept wandering away. And every one of us in this room gets this. And if you ever host anybody at your home, we got six kids, or six total, four kids, and anytime we have anybody over our house that's over two, right? If we got four more people rolling in, that's 10 people in our home. It's pretty crazy. It's kind of stressful, to be honest with you. You're kind of managing all kinds of stuff and making sure things are there and people got their food. So just imagine in this day, most likely Martha may be hosting something like 72 people in her home. Now, where, where are you getting that? Well, if you go to the first, first part of this chapter, chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 72 disciples to go do some crazy stuff in some cities. They come and report that and get all excited about that. There's nowhere in the text where it says the 72 left them. Most likely that they could mean the 72 people that are with them at minimal then. If we don't want to go 72, at minimal there's 13, the 12 disciples, and Jesus. That's a lot of people. And there's no Walmart. Right? Oh, I forgot the bacon. Right? She's got to slaughter a pig. Should have thought of that last night. Right? I'm saying like this. Like, this is a huge task, enormous. Of course her mind's going to be distracted. She's got 13 people to feed. And look, if we're all just being honest here, which I want to do that, right? Of course, if we have a choice between sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to the words of Jesus versus getting in there and fixing all the stuff, what are you going to do? They're going to sit at the feet of Jesus, right? It's like, let Martha worry about all this stuff. I'm, I'm fine sitting here soaking all this in. All I'm trying to do here is this, is that every single one of us in this room understand why Martha is a little ticked off. And I would say she's a little ticked off to G with Jesus. Because look what she says here, verse 40. Lord, don't you care? Don't, don't you care? That my sister has left me to serve alone, so tell her to give me a hand. I mean, look, Jesus, it sure feels like you don't care. Because the way I'm seeing it, if you really did care, you would say something. You would tell my sister to get off her butt and get herself in there and help me out. Like, this seems a little unfair. I'm working really hard, and my sister is doing nothing. And the way that this is written in the original language, it's implying here the way that, that Martha is asking this question. She's expecting Jesus to come to her aid and step in and correct the wrong here. And once again, everybody in this room understands what Martha's doing, right? If you grew up in a home, 
that you had multiple siblings? How many times did you not do this with your parents? Hey, hey, look what I'm doing, Dad. I think Joe's upstairs sitting down doing nothing. What are you going to do about it, right? All the time with my kids. Dad, I'm cleaning up the dishes. I think Conlon's up there playing video games, right? And what does he want Dad to do? He wants Dad to step in and stop. Bring some justice here, so to speak. And this is exactly what Martha wants. And honestly, this is exactly what we want Jesus to say. You see, we want Jesus to come in and say, oh, gosh, Martha, Martha, I'm so sorry. Oh, my goodness. I got carried away with teaching and didn't even notice that Mary's just sitting there doing nothing. And you're over here working and slaving with the family. Goodness gracious, Mary, you're so insensitive. Get in there and help your sister. In fact, this is something you've been dealing with for a while. We're going to deal with your insensitivity. Every time we're together, we're going to talk about that. That's what we want Jesus to say. Or... That's what I wanted to say. It seems like Mary's being treated horribly here. But look what Jesus says here. The Lord answered, Martha, Martha. Now this isn't the, the Brady Bunch. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Right? So I'm kind of dating myself a little bit. But the repetition here, and it's beautiful, of her name is, is conveying an expression of Affection, of concern. She's not, he's not being condescending by repeating her name. He's actually stepping in and saying, I do care for you. I do love you. And look what he says here. You are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made that right choice, and it will not be taken away from her. Now notice, Jesus never condemns Martha here. He never, you know, dismisses her sort of, um, I mean, I think it's good to use this language, anxiety over all that's going on. Like he doesn't. In fact, you can make the argument that Martha is concerned about something that is really good. It's not bad for her to want to be hospitable to her guests and provide a meal for them. That's not a horrible thing here. But what Jesus is helping Martha see is that there's one thing that is necessary. There's one thing that is needed. There's one thing that is ultimate. And so the question is, then what is Mary doing that shows us that one thing that is necessary? Well, look at verse 39. She had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. And so the one thing that Jesus is saying is necessary is for Mary to listen and Martha to listen to the words of Jesus. And so what I'm saying here, here's the posture, here's the picture of what it means to be a disciple. What it means to be a disciple is that I am one who listens to the words of Jesus. That's the one thing that is necessary, the one thing that is needed, the one thing that is ultimate. Now, Lyle, do you mean this, that whenever, you know, there's a, you know, I need to serve somewhere, or I need to, you know, do a chore, whatever it may be, my spouse is hounding me about whatever it is I need to be doing, that I can just call out and say, baby, I'm doing the one thing. So I get out, right? It's like, I'm doing the one thing that Jesus talks about here. I can't step in and change the diaper. Amen, right? Is that? Thanks for laughing a little bit. No, that's not 
what's going on here. And I don't think Jesus is trying to um, kind of pit these two ideas against one another and say one's better than the other. Like, like, you know, the contemplated life versus the life of action or, you know, sitting versus, you know, serving. I don't think Jesus is trying to say, you know, one is greater than the other or pit them against one another. What I do believe Jesus is doing here is he's kind of bringing out a propensity that is in all of us that if we are not careful, what we will begin to get our value and worth from is what we do for Jesus instead of being with Jesus. Are you following me? He's he's bringing to light a propensity that's in all of us in this room that we can find our value, our worth, our identity, and what we do for Jesus at the expense of being with Jesus and listening to the very words of Jesus. Now, where do you get that, Lyle? I mean, I can see it a little bit in this passage of Scripture, but where else do you get it? Well, it's in the context. So if you go to the... The beginning of this chapter, like I said earlier, Jesus gets 72 disciples. He sends them out into the cities. They go and do some amazing stuff, healing diseases, counting out demons, walking on snakes. I mean, all kinds of stuff, man. It's crazy stuff that's going on in these cities, right? And so they come back and give a report, and these guys are ecstatic. And so would you, right? It's like, this is what's happening. Man, this is like awesome. And so they're coming back, giving a report, and look what they say there in verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. So they come back excited about what they have done for Jesus. And notice this kind of, um, I don't know if it's necessarily a rebuke, but it's almost like a little subtle correction that Jesus gives to them in verse 20. Look, he says, however, this is Jesus speaking, don't rejoice that the Spirit's Submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Don't rejoice over what you just did for me. In fact, rejoice that you're part of my family. Rejoice that you are a child of God. And so hear me, guys. Look, Jesus is not like dismissing the good that these 72 people did. Jesus is not dismissing the good that Martha was doing. But what he is saying is this. If you take all these good things that you could do as disciples and you put them on a scale, they're not all equal. There is one thing that is absolutely necessary for your soul. There is one thing that is absolutely needed for you to survive as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that is you have got to listen to the words of Jesus. You've got to sit and listen to the words of Jesus because all of us in this room have a bent to where we find our value, our worth, and what we're doing for Jesus at the expense of finding it and being with Jesus. One writer talks about um, these essentials of Christian discipleship, and I gave this to Eric in the first service like 15 minutes before church started, so he was great in getting me a slide for this. But I want to show you a few things here. He talks about five things that are essential 
for Christian discipleship. So, so one is we have a private relationship with Jesus where we're spending time with him. Our private lives reflect that relationship, which in essence is saying, hey, character is formed in who you are by yourself, not who you are in public, all right? We practice both charity and justice or love and justice, and we're involved in a church community, and I'm all on board with all four of those, and I love number five. Look at number five. And we do all these things with what? A mellow, calm, forgiving heart. And so how do I get a mellow, calm, forgiving heart? It's not by doing things for Jesus. It's by being with Jesus. Because when I'm with Jesus, then his character becomes my character. Look, guys, look. We can do all four of those things. We can, we can have a private relationship with Jesus. That's doing. We can have private lives that reflect this relationship. That's sort of doing. We can practice both charity and justice. That's doing. We can be involved in a church community like this. That's doing. And we can be bitter, angry, hollow, distant, whatever you want to say, Christians. And we won't have this calm, forgiving heart. Because that only happens not when we're doing things for him, but when we are listening to Jesus. I love what Dallas Willard said here, he's probably the guru on discipleship, he's read tons of books on this, but look what he says about this, and this idea of listening, because when we listen, we're not just wanting to learn about Jesus, we're wanting to learn Jesus, all right, so listen to what he says here, so I'm learning from Jesus to live my life as he would live my life if he were I, so, so follow me, all right, I'll, I'll get to the rest of the quote. So look, when we're listening to Jesus, when we're spending time listening to him, we're not doing that to learn facts about Jesus. We're not. We're not doing that to study Jesus, so to speak, so I can learn about him. Actually, what we're trying to do is we're trying to learn, learn Jesus, so that I'm learning from Jesus to live my life as he would live my life if he were I. I'm not necessarily learning to do everything he did, but I'm learning how to do everything I do in the manner that he did it all that he did. Are you following me? So, look. So if the, if the posture and the picture of a disciple is someone who is listening to the words of Jesus, the goal of that is not just learning facts about Jesus. I mean, what did James say? Even the demons know that. It's like, whoop-de-doo. But in fact, the goal of that is that you are wanting to learn Jesus. I, mean, I see this in my relationship with Kathy, and you guys may have heard this before, but look, I'm not, I don't go on dates with my wife so I can learn about Kathy. Now tell me again where you were born. I really mess that up all the time, Right? Can you spell that out for me? Yeah. Now remind me again of when you were born, what date. I always mess that up too. So can you give me a reminder of, no, I'm not trying to learn facts about her, right? I'm spending time with Kathy, listening to her talk so that I can not just learn facts about her, so that I can learn Kathy. So that when those days, when I'm giving a gift, whether anniversary, birthday, or Christmas, 
I know what to give her. Amen? I can usually tell when I've not been listening to my wife, when birthday shows up and I'm going, I don't know what to get you. <laughs> A gift card? Would that work, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, not, not many laughter on that one. So... I guess I'm the only one that does that. I, I'm sorry, I've never given a gift card unless she's really asked for one. But moving on here, what I'm trying to say is this, is that when I listen to my wife, my goal in listening to her is to learn Kathy that has a way of deepening our relationship with one another. And the same with Jesus. We're listening to learn Christ. So, yeah. I think the obvious implication of this, right? And this is where it gets a little like people start oh, dealing with shame and guilt and all this kind of stuff. But I just I got to lay it out there because it is in the text. Like the way that we learn Jesus and listen to Jesus because Jesus is not physically here, but his words are here. From Genesis to Revelation, This book is about Jesus, all of it. And whenever we open up this book and we read it, whether together as a community or by myself, I am hearing the words of Jesus. I'm doing exactly what Mary did in that home. I'm sitting down and I'm listening to the words of Jesus. That's why on Sundays, guys, look, this is a big deal. Like this... We don't just open up the book when I roll up here. Our entire service is saturated with the Word of God. And that's on purpose. Why? Because we believe whenever we're reading the words of God, we are listening to the very words of Jesus. That's why when we go to community groups, I get it. It may not be a Bible study, so to speak, but we are opening up the very words of Jesus that we talked about on Sunday and find ways that we can further apply that in our lives. That's what's going on on a weekly basis. Why do we do that? Why do we make sure we open up the word of God? Because we believe that whenever we read the Bible, we are listening to the words, say it with me, words of who? Say it out loud. Jesus. That's why we want to provide supplements and tools. That's why we do a men's study and a women's study that always has at the focus in the center the Word of God because we believe that whenever we read the Word of God, we are listening to the words of Jesus. That's why I want to encourage you to take responsibility for the growth and the health of your soul by giving you tools that get you in the Word of God. And my encouragement here, and this is probably a sermon in and of itself, but I'm just going to sprinkle it out there, and if you've got questions, you can come talk to me at the end of this. I want to encourage a reading of the word that's more relational and not informational. Like, guys, an overchurched area like we live in is so obsessed to some extent with Bible study in a negative way, I would argue. And what I mean by a negative way is that we have a tendency to approach this book kind of like we approach a biology book. And we're dissecting, we're trying to get in there and find out this and that. And and we're kind of studying for information instead of using a lens by which you read the Bible that's more relational. Where we're engaging not just our head, but our heart. Where we're taking a passage of scripture and we're using our imagination that was used a whole lot when we're kids. But we don't do it as adults. 
and we take a little small section of scripture and we begin to use our imagination of like, okay, what did that look like? What did that feel like? When he said those words to that individual, if he said those to me, what would be going on? That's reading the text relationally, not just for information. Because I, I get it. I hear it. I hear it all the time. And I, and I, and I agree to some extent to this. Uh, there's a big movement right now where, where Christians are biblically illiterate. And all that is basically saying, those big languages, that our Christians just don't know their Bible well. And, all right, yes, I, I, yes, there is a part that I agree to that. But there is a part where I don't agree with it. And you can push back later. Don't push back today or Monday. Monday, I'm usually depressed. Wait till Tuesday. Send me some pushback on Tuesday. But here's what I'm just trying to say. I'm just saying this. Like, look, if you're someone in this room who spends the rest of their life digging into the gospel of Luke, Paragraph by paragraph, reading it relationally, I think it has the power to change your life more so than knowing where the book of Job is. That's what I'm saying. So yes, a massive implication here is that we've got to read the word of God in order to listen to Jesus. So I also want to, maybe not nuance, but maybe just add another rhythm that's in the context of this, and I'll close with this, and I'm done, all right? So I would say it's really hard to listen to the words of Jesus when we live in a culture that's full of noise. I'll say it again. It's really hard to get space, to get time, to listen to the words of Jesus when we live in a culture that is full of noise. And I want to encourage us, not as law, but as an invitation, that one of the regular rhythms that maybe you start putting in your life is silence and solitude. Where you get space and time where you're alone to think and to reflect. Over and over in the Gospels, you can read this. Jesus comes not only to live our lives on our behalf, but look, look at me. He comes to give you a picture of what it means to be human. How to live as a human being on this earth. He's the new Adam, as we understand it from Scripture. And so if that is the truth, he's come to show me how to live as a human being. Over and over, Jesus gets away to be alone. He gets away to be disconnected. He withdraws from the crowd in order to have this intimate relationship with his father. Jesus is one who embodied what God said in the Psalms, be still. Be still. And know that I'm God. Mike Cosper and his good book called Recapturing Wonder says this. I've come to wonder whether these, solitude and secrecy, it's, it's kind of a way saying the same thing I'm talking about here, are not the key disciplines for living the Christian life today. They're almost certainly the starting place. Some find, might, find, might find that thought kind of odd. Why not prayer? Why not scripture reading or scripture meditation? The reason is we need to cultivate and protect 
that darker ground. It's a metaphor to gardening. Rich, dark soil helps produce healthy crops in which our faith can be nourished and nurtured. We need to break the habits of display and discover what it means to be alone with God. And here's the line. Otherwise, the disciplines become just one more way of performing for a crowd. Guys, we live in an age of the spectacle where everything is tweeted out and Instagrammed or Facebooked. I don't know if that's a verb, but I'm just made up one here, right? Even spiritual experiences. We have a moment. Oh, wow, we got to tweet it out. We got to get it out there so the world can see us. When are we ever truly alone, people? I mean, think about that. When are you ever truly alone? Because even when you're alone, you're not alone. I mean, the irony of today is that I have not brought my phone up here in the seven plus years that I've been a pastor. Never been in my pocket because I'm always fearful that I don't turn it off, you know what I'm saying? And like, that's a little, I, one time, I, okay, real quick, all right, so I know we're running out of time. One time I did a wedding and I had to give the prayer at the beginning before the reception deal stuff and I had my phone in my pocket and it, somebody called me, like right before, I, all right, moving on. But here's, here's the thing, and and look, here's the irony of this. So we had this app that's going out today, and, and so Josh came in. Hey, you know what might be a good idea to bring your phone up there, tell everybody to get their phone out, so I bring it out here. But in my notes, I'm talking about the phone. It's like, what irony, right? It's like God's just laughing his head off, ha, <laughs> right? But here's the deal. Stay with me, stay with me. Think about this. 11 years ago, this was invented. 11, just 11 years ago, January 2007, and in 11 years, this little device has radically changed our lives. I mean, so much so where we feel naked if we don't take it with us, right? It's like, oh my gosh, I forgot my phone, right? That was a little weird. I lost my mic there. <laughs> but it is. It's just it's so funny. It's like, you know, we survived. If you're in your 50s, right, you survived without a cell phone. Decades of people did, Right? We go on a trip, oh, I forgot our cell phone. Let's stop. We can't go anywhere, right? It's like, we don't know where we're going. We don't have a map. It's, it's so crazy how this has absolutely changed our lives. And look, I'm not, like, please hear me. I'm not going, oh, it's sinful and wrong for you to have a cell phone. Obviously, I've got one, right, and I got up here with me today, all right? And we're encouraging you to download an app for crying out loud on the day I'm talking about cell phones. But here's what I'm saying. Like, it is good. There's a whole way of accessibility, information, the way we can connect with people overseas. It's crazy, that kind of stuff. But here's, there is a downside or even an underbelly. And I would say this, that you never are Alone. There's nothing wrong with the way we have access to so much stuff that the phone gives us. But I would say, man, there's something wrong with it having access to you all the time. For some of you, it's the first thing you pick up in the morning. It's the last thing you look at at night. Anytime there's downtime or waiting, you're in drive-through, 
waiting to pick your kids up. You're at Walmart, for crying out loud. You're waiting in one of the lanes that's open of their 50,000 they have, right? And what do you do? You look at this. You play a game. Check out your social media. That even when you're alone, you're not really alone. And maybe, if you're like me, the reason why you don't want to be alone and you love being distracted is because you're afraid of the real you. Because isn't that what happens? You get alone, and the real you shows up, doesn't it? With all your inconsistencies, insecurities, all the places that you failed, you blew it, that sin, and you think, oh man, I thought I had victory in this. Boy, I don't. And in essence, what this does is it kind of distracts us from ourselves. And here's what I would say that silence and aloneness and solitude does is that, yeah, the real you shows up, but it's probably the first time that you actually feel your spiritual poverty. And when you feel your spiritual poverty, here's the beautiful news of the, of the gospel, is that God comes in and you begin to experience the riches of his grace that is seen in Jesus Christ. Are you following me? So, so in one sense, guys, when we forfeit being alone because we're afraid of the real you that's going to show up, you're forfeiting experiencing the very spiritual blessings that God has given to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Because when you're alone and all that stuff comes up, God's not going, nope, I don't want it. Because his son has paid in full all that's going on in your mind. He's saying, okay, bring it to the table. I love that you. You don't like it. Makes you all afraid and scared. But I love that you. I actually died for that you. I love how one writer puts this. He says this. We move forward in discipleship. Not mainly through pep talks, stern warnings. We move forward when we hear afresh the strangeness of grace, relaxing our hearts and loosening our clenched hold on the litany of lesser things. Did you hear that? We move forward in discipleship when we hear afresh the strangeness of grace. And where can we hear that? When we're alone, the real you comes up and makes you really scared. You don't like it. You want to grab this, distract yourself. But it's in those moments that you can experience the strangeness of grace. God says, I got it. Bring that to the table. Let's have a conversation. So yeah, the posture, the picture of a disciple is one who listens to Jesus and listens to the words of Jesus. And I want to encourage us that we begin a rhythm in our lives where we're silent, alone, 
so that we can drown out all the noise that goes on in our world so we can listen afresh to the strangeness of grace. And so I want to encourage us. Here's kind of one do, all right? And this is kind of from Mike Cosper's little book there. Because the reality is this. If you try to walk out of this room and say, I'm going to do like a half-day solitude. Good luck, all right? You'll go about five minutes, all right? I've tried to do it, and it, it, it wasn't very pleasant, all right? So here's what I like. I like the little softballs, amen? Uh, the little small baby steps. And so here's baby step or little solitudes that happen throughout your day. All of us in this room, you're going to be waiting somewhere tomorrow, amen? And so instead of grabbing this, just be still. Yeah, you're going to have all kinds of distractions that roll in your heart, but don't try to fight those. Actually, invite those in. Pay attention to them. It's a way to inform your prayers. It's a way to say, hey, here's, I know you know this guy, but here's what's going on. This is what I'm dealing with. It's a way that Jesus begins to carry your burdens. Little solitudes. There's times of waiting. Don't distract yourself. Invite the real you to the table and look and see and feel how God heals, brings comfort, brings strength when you're needed. Let's pray.